God, poor O'Brien, you know? Has to go and deal with this backwater terrible station without proper support, which I've kind of already brought that up in this show already, so I'm not going to really rehash that point. But, jeez Louise, I feel bad for this guy. But I just want to add in a quiet little thing from the perspective of someone who's worked as an IT engineer for... Well, excuse me, as a network engineer for uh, almost a decade. He mentions how I'm going to have to completely reprogram the entire computer... And then Cisco's like, all right, what's that going to take? And O'Brien says, ah, a few years. Now, what's funny is, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's actually what O'Brien does over the next few years, is slowly reprogram the computer to be actually functional. Lord knows most of the actual issues from that perspective, you know, basically the plot hook of computer screwing up, kind of falls off when about season two and season three get going, so yeah, I think it's feasible he actually did that. But what I really wanted to share is how feasible that is. And I know that sounds weird, but this is an entire space station that has to keep operating with interlinking systems. So rewriting and overhauling and updating something that can't go down, that's a pain in the arse right there. Now, again, speaking from real-life tech experience, there are certain types of hardware and a few types of software that you can that are literally designed to basically be hot-swapped, to upgrade or update or whatever, without interrupting service. But that's not only not everything, it's kind of a more recent thing. I'd say at this point, probably within the last ten years or so. So, yeah, all I'm trying to say is that I feel for O'Brien on this one, and I totally believe that he actually does spend the next couple of years with most of his spare time fixing the entire station. So, I want to comment on something really quick before I get into the two main plots of the episode. Loxana grabs Quark's ear in a place that she knows hurts, and then tries to, through physical intimidation and pain, force him to do what she wants. Odo then comes in, and my first thought was, oh, he's going to call her out on that. And then she's going to be impressed by him, because he has the the uchutzma, or whatever you want to call it, to be able to, to stand up to her, right? But no, it's never mentioned again, because <laughs> Quark gets, you know, Quark deserves that, right? Except, as we see, Quark actually was innocent here. And Quark legitimately was just assaulted, or at least batteried, for no reason. By someone who was just trying to extort him, effectively, or coerce him, I should say, through physical violence. I, I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but it's one of those things that we just kind of accept in fiction that would never fly in real life. There would be consequences for that in real life. And again, I think it would have been nice if Odo comes in and immediately you know, stops her, and that's what calls her attention to him, rather than his attention to detail calling her attention to him. Or hell, even in addition to his attention to detail calling attention to him. Because could, he could have just come in and basically said, Ma'am, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to release him now, what seems to be the problem. And Quark's like, rah, and Odo's like, that's a valid complaint. Did you have any reason to suspect him? No. Well, you're a telepath. And then basically just do the rest of the episode as was. Just a tiny little change. I think that would have been a nice little fit. But... That's just me talking out loud. Forgive me. So, I don't have a lot of notes on this episode. There's really the two plots, and I'm going to try and cover these two. Actually, there's three plots. Excuse me. But I don't have much to say about the computer plot. This is the second time in a row where the main dilemma plot is something that I just have nothing to talk about. 
So there's this AI thing or program thing or whatever that has some capacity for an understanding of desire. Whatever its levels of AI are, it has the capacity to want. And that's all it really needs to be able to interact in the way it does in the episode, ways it does in the episode. And so we see this thing enjoys interaction with others, being tasked to do problems or operations or to work, especially with O'Brien himself. And in a weird way, that actually makes sense. A lot of creatures on this planet, including us, are very social creatures. You know, we, we are at our best or we desire interaction with others. Now, of course, that's a blanket statement. There are exceptions and there are people who aren't like that. Duh, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm being completely assumptive here. But for the most part, <laughs> we're social people. We like to interact, we like to talk, we like to leave comments on YouTube videos. Do it, do it, come on. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it's actually a great aspect of our culture, of our society, both of which wouldn't even exist if we weren't social creatures. But my reason for bringing this up is the idea of understanding a form of intelligence which may or may not be truly sentient or sapient, nevertheless being a social creature isn't that hard because I'm sure most of you have seen a dog in your life. Now, I realize that the episode itself flat out makes the comparison between this artificial thing and a puppy, but this is a real thing. Dogs in real life are social creatures. They like to interact with you. They like to have regular interactions with you. And they will basically start not doing well in terms of literal health if they're left alone. Right? It's one of the reasons why most people, when they have to go away on a trip, either take their dogs with them or ask someone to come over every now and again to let them, you know, to walk them, feed them, and you know, give them scratches and let them know they're there. Because otherwise, it's just not going to be good for the dog. Makes sense? I mean, right? So I like that parallel. And I like the idea that it legitimately enjoys the, you know, for lack of a better term, the social interaction that it has as it works with O'Brien. Now, I searched my memory on this one, but I couldn't think of anything. Please feel free to bring it up if I lost it or if I just couldn't find it. But I don't think this is ever brought up again, this little puppy AI thing. I don't think it's ever even mentioned one more time out of this. And that's kind of a shame, because I think this could have been a nice way to help explain, you know, a, a developing plot. And if you'll forgive me, before I start talking about the two other plots, I want to segue and talk about this. Because one of the things that I love about writing in television is the creative possibilities. Uh, there's a lot of shows I could talk about on this. I'm not going to go too much into analogies or examples. But what I mean by that is, okay... You know, I got a room of people where all the writers, you know, the writers room. I sit down. It's like, all right, here's our, here's our premise, right? What stories come to you in that premise? Okay. Now, there's probably a decent handful, like probably even a dozen or so stories. And usually, after a bit, you start to run a little bit dry on stories. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of shows tend to kind of do worse in quality later on in their series. Not universally true, of course. Uh, Enterprise and Voyager are both a good example of shows that actually kind of got better as they went on rather than worse. But TNG is probably the best example while well, staying, staying in Star Trek that I could use here because Season 7 was not good. I mean, there were good episodes in Season, season 7, but for the most part, right? It's because they were just running out of ideas, and there's no shame in that. But what I love is the idea of 
I, I'm sure there's a proper literary term for this. I don't remember if I've ever heard it or, or learned it, but okay, you write all the stories you can think of for the now, and then you have a story which changes the now, alters the status quo, which enables you to have more storytelling. Let me use, again, I'll keep using Star Trek, because I imagine most of my viewers have watched Star Trek. Let me use a direct Star Trek example of this. Voyager. Now, early on, the desire to get home plot was something that was a valid plot. Now, <laughs> the will they get a home again plot was kind of badly done, but it was a valid starting point. Um, and there were other valid starting points, which they didn't really fulfill on either, because early Voyager, right? But, you know, the the... the dichotomy between the, um, the that should have been between the Maquis and the Federation crew members um, the new area with alien concepts that we have no maps of and no understanding of so we can be taken advantage of or we're, we're going through alien territory or the lack of proper tools or resources or materiel because we have no shipyard and repairs start being off you know, all of these are base premises but if I sat down with you or any of you out there who are interested in writing and said, give me some Voyager stories, I imagine a lot of you have already had or would have stories for that base premise. But we'd only have so many, probably about enough for a season, you know, maybe 20 to 24-ish episodes, right? And even that might be stretching it a little bit. But the point is, what should then happen is things should alter. Now, Voyager took a long time to get there, but eventually the will-they-get-home-again plot was completely altered by the communications-with-home plots. The status quo was altered. They had the ability to communicate with the Alpha Quadrant. Well, Beta Quadrant. They had the ability to communicate with home, right? And that was a big game-changer, and now we have a new premise with new ideas. Now, why am I bringing this up with regards to DS9? Because that's what it feels like we're looking at here. As I just mentioned, several of the episodes in Season 1 and part of Season 2 are, this is a dump. You know, this is a terrible, broken-down station we can barely control. And we will see plenty of episodes in Season 1 and in Season 2 where, that, where they're still circling the writer's room of that premise, that base idea that this is an in-the-boonies station, and we need to, you know, and we need to make do with that. Because there's plenty of stories you can tell with that. This AI thing, then, would have been a nice way to help begin a segue into a, we now have control of the station, you know, and then let's actually do some other kinds of storytelling. Now, it is worth noting Deep Space Nine does eventually change the status quo, and I'm not going to discuss why or how here, but I, I feel like this, this particular thing with this little AI dog, or whatever the hell it is, was a missed opportunity to continue having some continuity, especially in a, in a, in a series that was reasonably strong about setting continuity. So let's talk about the other two plots. First of all, let's talk about the Ambassadors. Yay! So, I, I have a quote here on my notes. I'm just going to read this word for word for you. Why are the Federation Ambassadors awful people? I actually have something up on my second monitor here, which I usually don't really look at when I'm doing these recordings. But I have it up specifically so I can read this to you word for word. An Ambassador... Noun. An official envoy, especially a diplomatic agent of the highest rank, accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign or appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment, or an authorized representative or messenger, or an unofficial representative. Now, why did I bother with that? Because nowhere in there do you see something that would lean itself towards being a dick. And yet, the Vulcan is 
pompous and overbearing. The Bolian is, well, pompous and overbearing, but in a different way. The Bolian is, I'm very important and rude. The Vulcan is, I'm very important and better than you. And the, I don't know what her race is, is very, I want everything to be exactly right and rude. Now we know why they did this. It's because it's for the comedy effect. They even had a payoff for the joke, for lack of a better term, when they all praised Julian, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but are these really the ambassadors for the Federation? I know we kind of sort of accept this in Starfleet, in Star Trek in general. Uh, it, I've talked about this before. It's the, uh, it's the obstinate bureaucrat character archetype. Usually we see it as a Commodore or an Admiral. Pop quiz right now. How many good admirals, like legitimately intelligent, well-meaning, interesting, well-done characters that you like, you know, pleasant characters, in all of Star Trek are there amongst the Admiralty? I can think of one off the top of my head. Maybe two if we stretch it. Two. One on DS9, Ross, and one on Voyager. Uh, Paris, Admiral Paris. God damn. I'm trying to think of his damn name. That's all I got. I wasn't counting Admiral McCoy because he doesn't count. In addition to being medical, he's also basically retired. I suppose we could count Admiral Kirk, but you're starting to really split hairs there, aren't you? You see where I'm going with this? This is a very common trope in Star Trek. And I'm just a little bit, like, I, I don't know, maybe I've just been watching Star Trek for the better part of my entire lifetime. <laughs> because I have. About 30 years at this point. But... I'm just a little tired of it. Okay, I get it. They're, they're uppity. They're snobs. Yeah, that's great. Why are they snobs? Maybe I just buy a little bit too much into how I perceive Starfleet and the Federation. And Lord knows that colors a lot of my opinions, and I've tried to be open about this in the past, too. But for me, I would think the ambassadors of Starfleet would be people who were very patient and very understanding, and very capable of comprehending many different things and equating to them, because not every race is going to interact with you the same way. It is telling that, and I believe I just talked about this in, uh, in the episode Progress, it is telling that Cisco and Picard are both better ambassadors than these assholes. Anyways, that brings me to my next point. Why would you fawn off the ambassadors onto the lower crewmen? No, I know the answer to that. It's because they're terrible. If it has become so common for ambassadors to be, let's use a, let's use a slightly different term, prima donnas, because that's kind of how they act. If that is the norm for, you know, that kind of upper echelons or federation high personal VIP or whatever, and so it's become common to, to fawn off these people into lower crewmen, basically as a punishment slash hazing ritual slash earn your stripes kind of a situation. Maybe we should start addressing the problem at the baseline. Also, maybe this is just me and my own admittedly limited experience in management, but uh, my management philosophy isn't assign the person lowest on the totem pole the worst jobs, because at that point, it basically becomes a punishment. And that's the only way that works is by negative reinforcement, a.k.a. I will stop punishing you with these kinds of assignments if you manage to work your way up the rungs a few. 
And then you'll be able to punish people below you. Won't that be great? It should be pretty obvious why I'm not in favor of that particular philosophy of management. <sighs> also, I, I, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about this, but this really caught my attention. Cisco admits that he, he hit an ambassador who was trying to convince a, a, a woman to go to his quarters when he when she didn't want to. First of all, let me just say that's exactly what I would probably do in that circumstance, uh, based on what little we know of it, it is worth noting. But if Cisco, who I know he's got a little bit of a violent reputation, but if Cisco is has reached the point of slugging one of his fellow members of the Federation, it is probably deserved. The reason I don't want to bring this up is that's kind of abhorrent and unfortunately has been a rather recurring media circus thing of the last few months here in real life. But if that kind of thing is happening amongst the Federation ambassadors, we have passed the point of you have a problem and need to fix it. And we are now at the point where your problem is an overwhelming lava pool of death and you should probably go ahead and fix it. I don't know, maybe just, just a weird thought. Maybe you should try recruiting or training or working with your ambassadors to be ambassadors rather than prima donnas and by the way just as a really quick aside i want to stress that prima donna is a matter of attitude some people think that people wanting specific things or being picky is a prima donna attitude and that is not true someone who works i, I actually knew uh, an engineer go back to the uh, it thing for a second a network engineer who was really really good at many different things most notably vmware for those of you know what that is and he was pretty much the go-to guy for that. Now, he also was kind of picky. But he was also the kind of person who did a lot of very hard work. And I personally don't see anything particularly wrong with rewarding someone for that and tolerating that as long as they're not a dick about it. And this gentleman in question was never a dick about it. Like, when we'd go out, basically, one thing that would happen pretty normally is we'd have, a you know, someone goes and gets food while we're all working late, right? Pretty normal thing. And he'd be like, all right, I want this with this with this, but without this, but without this, but with this, and I want this, and I want this, and could you go to this other place for this, please? Very polite. He was just picky about it, right? So the reason I'm bringing this up is there's nothing wrong with the ambassadors, for example, having very stressful jobs and having very specific things that bring some measure of relaxation or enjoyment to their lives to compensate them for the hard work they do. That doesn't bother me. Ambassadors running around... Being dicks bothers me. Moving on. Oh, one last thing. I'm not going to spoil anything. All I'm going to say is, for those of you who have been following The Adventures of Julian Bashir, I think his portrayal in this episode is actually very coherent with what we learn in the future. Moving on. Let's talk about Odo and Roxana. Before I actually get into their interactions in particular, I want to comment on something that just struck me. Loxana gives a very, very slanted and interesting portrayal of the episode Menage à Trois. Uh, excuse me, Menage à Trois. I'm actually not sure how you're supposed to say that. I suppose I'll have to figure it out when I get there. Um, the episode where Loxana and Troy, Deanna, are captured by da Diamond Tog. Damon? Diamond? I don't remember. Tog. And it's all this plan to extract their mind control abilities or mind reading abilities, excuse me, in order to get some kind of profit out of it, blah, blah, blah. It's not a good episode. 
has some good memes in it, but it's not really what I'd call a good episode. But what I find most interesting, and I don't want to spoil too much of my rumination of that episode, but I remember this very distinctly. Loxana Troy in that episode was overbearing, self-important, and egotistical to a fault. Damon Tog was overbearing and egotistical to a fault. And everything, the exact same thing she was. In fact, he wasn't even that exaggerated compared to her. What I find interesting is in that episode, she was repulsed by him, even before he kidnapped her. Now, here, in this episode, she speaks of him in surprisingly positive terms. I just find that fascinating. The idea that she saw someone who is in many ways like her, and was able to, with time and memory, look back on those moments more fondly, rather than at the moment where it was, ugh. Nothing new to add there. I just wanted to comment on that. So, Odo and Loxana. I keep stuttering over that word, forgive me. Loxana. Um, I always have trouble with L's and A's in, in my pronunciation. Loxana. It's very obvious to see why she likes Odo. He is... Well, he's strong. And I don't mean that in just the terms of physical strength. I mean, he has a strong personality. He has strong charisma. He has strong presence. He's very stubborn. He's the kind of person who is, frankly, unyielding. And we have everything we have seen of her has shown that she does like that in people she is attracted to. It is arguably one of the biggest reasons why she became enamored with Picard over on TNG, because he is, in many ways, that same overall presence, that masculine pillar of strength kind of a thing, right? Nothing wrong with that. No shame here. I also find it fascinating and indeed amusing that it's so obvious why he wants nothing to do with her. And there's no way to discuss this without going into future stuff. But all I'm going to say right now is that this was a deliberate step by the writers to begin a character arc for Odo, to really start examining and analyzing him. Some stuff that has been done for him unintentionally became a character arc. You know, stuff that they went back to and then developed further. This was one of the very few instances, one of the first times they actually deliberately did front-loaded writing when it came to DS9. They had this planned out, and he even mentions the hair and the scientist, uh, Maura Paul. I don't actually remember if that's how you pronounce it. It's been a while since I've seen it, but this gentleman played by an awesome guest star. I forget his name, too, but he's a really great guest star. Um... He's mentioned here, not by name, and they lay the seeds for that. And in fact, when we see him, he does style his hair just like Odo, or more accurately, Odo just like him. And we also learn a little bit more about Odo's perspective and his thoughts for the future and the fact that he is very observant and that he despises people who are too fake. And that's why he doesn't want to be around Luxana. Because he is observant enough to recognize that she has a nice, big, gaudy mask on. Because she does. For all the venom that has been spit at her character, including that I myself have spit, I love it when they actually bother to examine the real character underneath all of that gauze. All of that... that... <sighs> I, I'm literally physically, like, in my mind, I'm picturing right now a mask that's just glittering, and it's got gold, and it's got, like, this weird, just 
feathers and and you, you, you know right it's just this ostentatious thing very rarely in in all of star trek very rarely loxana troy has taken off that mask and we have seen a character i wanted to see more of we have seen someone who is a person who is a very private person who hates the ordinary forgive me but i completely empathize with that one of my first memories uh, when i was very young is how much i hated the thought of being normal i bet a lot of you can understand that too right this episode gives us a little bit of an insight into the person she even literally takes her hair off it's it's just it's fascinating because if you pay attention to all the scenes, we see her just full on, you know, full mask mode. But then, like, it's not just the hair takes off and then we see the real her. She reveals a little bit more of her bit by bit by bit in each scene she's in until we get to that scene where she literally takes the hair off. And that's the first scene where all the mask is gone and we just see the real person. And Odo, even in his dilapidated state, can recognize that and that's when he finally allows himself to relax and though he says otherwise he is ashamed embarrassed this is a man or being he, he identifies as male so whatever this is a man who has a tremendous amount of pride huge amount of pride in who and what he is i, I am reminded in many ways of spock who <laughs> was a very prideful individual it was one of the strongest elements of his character back in TOS. And they did some great stuff with that, too. It, it, most of his character arc in the, in the original series movies was about him slowly letting go of that pride and gaining wisdom in its place. But here, Odo, he doesn't want to be seen like this. He doesn't want to be seen as weak or meek or helpless. And if you think about it, even though, logically, Loxana Troy is not going to take advantage of him. She's, I, I, don't, I don't just mean sexually. I mean, she's not going to, like, fling him into the thing or shoot him or toss him or do any kind of untoward thing to him. I think it's fairly well understood, and I think intellectually Odo understands that, too. But that doesn't make it easier to open yourself up to someone, because that is effectively what he does. He leaves himself in his most vulnerable state in her care. That's actually pretty powerful. And you can see how this is such a great Odo moment and a development of Odo as a character, too. The beginnings of what would eventually become this awesome character arc that goes through almost the entire series starts right here, really. Intentionally starts here, I should clarify. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> I... I also love one little subtle detail. I guess it's not that subtle. Forgive me. I'll put this over to the side. The idea that Odo despises... How do I put this? How many of you out there have something about you that you're a little embarrassed about? Maybe a little bit of social anxiety, right? Or maybe you're interested in someone of the same gender. Or maybe you're not sure of your own sexual identity, right? Now, 
I imagine a lot of people... I, I have my own things, nothing nearly that severe. You want to know what my thing was? I'll go ahead and tell you. I was a geek. I remember when I used to be ashamed of being a geek. I mean, you know, I was born in the 80s. It was kind of a thing that was looked down upon socially, at least where I grew up, here in the States. And no matter where I lived, it was always this thing that left me ostracized. Now, I always had my friends, my own little friends that I could hang out with, but for the most part, we were over in the corner trying to avoid people, right? Now, I bring this up because one of the things that most people don't like when they have some kind of thing that they're not really proud of or that they're... It might even be a huge shame thing because, again, shame isn't really the point. Just something you're kind of embarrassed about, you know? What if you have braces? I knew someone like this. There was a girl I knew back in fourth grade who had braces, and she hated what I'm about to talk about, which is having a big spotlight put on it. One time the teacher, fourth grade again, brought her up, made her open her teeth so everyone could see her braces, and then started yelling about how this was completely normal and ordinary, and no one should be calling attention to it. I hope you're catching the irony here because she was so upset about that. I actually had to go and run and give her a big hug because she was crying afterwards. Because someone did call attention to that. When you ostracize someone for being un, you know, out of the ordinary, whether you're doing it positively or negatively, you're still ostracizing them. You're still putting the flashlight on them, right? Most people don't want that flashlight put on them. This brings me all the way back to Odo. Loxana loves having the flashlight put on her. She loves being the center of the tension, and Odo doesn't. He wants to be over there in the corner, left alone to his own devices, or, as he is going to slowly accept over the course of the series, just accepted for who he is. I know that sounds simple, but... You know that girl I mentioned? Fourth grade? Braces? The reason I became her friend was because I never called attention to her braces, because it was ordinary. There was nothing to call attention to. I just treated her like she was a person. She liked that. And most people I know like that. I like that. I like it when you treat me as just a guy, rather than a geek, rather than trying to call attention to it. Now, I mean, I'm 35 now. I'm a little past that. But, you know, when I was a kid, right? You understand. I imagine most of you do. Odo wants to be accepted as a normalcy, and most people view him as a curiosity. He even says this in the episode, I was the life of the party, and, and praise to René Bergeron. He absolutely nails the role of someone who is acting all amused at something that he is secretly despising. Because that's what the Cardassians did, and that's what the Bajorans did, and to a small extent, that is what has been done here and there in, in the series thus far. Big ol' spotlight shined on him because he's different. I thought that was a nice insight into his character. Forgive me, I don't have much else to say. I do hope you enjoyed this discussion, and I'll be seeing you guys next week.